welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and I work with Peace Catalyst International here in the Washington, D.C. area. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Allie Bernison. Hey, everyone. I'm Allie, and I'm with PCI in Los Angeles, California. By the way, if you enjoy the Peace Catalyst podcast, please do us a favor and take some time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. This just helps boost our visibility and encourages others to give us a listen. Yeah, thank you all for doing that. Really helps us a lot. And we're so grateful for all of our listeners um, who faithfully follow the Peace Catalyst podcast. Um, So definitely (laughs) keep sharing (laughs) with your friends. So Allie, how was your weekend. Did you do anything for MLK Day? Yes, I am actually in the process of moving right now. Um, So a lot of my weekend, or at least bits and pieces of my weekend and a chunk of MLK Day was uh, packing, kind of running around. Um, Yeah, you realize how much stuff you've accumulated when you're trying to move, I feel like. (laughs) Um, And so uh, there's an upcoming event that I'll be attending, um, organized by my former school. I went to Fuller Seminary. And so Dr. Dwight Radcliffe is going to be speaking um, tomorrow. Uh, It's kind of a celebration event of um, what you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and so many others achieved in the civil rights movement and kind of where where do we go from here? So it's a virtual event that I'm excited to attend and hear um, hear his his thoughts and perspectives. He's um, the like academic dean of the Center for Black Church Studies and also an assistant professor of mission, theology and culture. So I'm sure he's going to share some some incredible thoughts just like our guest today but I uh, can't wait to get to that so how was your how was your MLK day um, what what did you do if anything or what were you thinking about yeah that all sounds incredible and I'm looking forward to hearing how that conversation goes um, but yeah it was a good weekend we are my husband and I are preparing to travel to South Africa for three months um, <laughs> for his job. Yeah. So the next podcast episode, maybe you'll be hearing me from South Africa. <laughs> so yeah, so we're doing a lot to get ready for that. And I had a, a good friend of mine. Um, her name is Ola. Um, and she shared this uh gospel choir church service um that was happening locally to her and she's muslim um but she has an organization that works with multi-faith um peacemaking called our common beliefs and so she's very engaged in all different faith groups um and she just shared that live stream with me so i tuned into that for a little bit um yeah and just was reading different things that people are posting and learning more about um I think, yeah, it's interesting, like the depth of MLK and like what he shared and what he advocated for and um, some of the ways that maybe we're not always getting the full picture of that or um, the full story. So I always I love seeing what different people post and just learning from from those things. So that was cool. Right. Yeah. And just very interesting timing, of course, with the new series that we're beginning today um, with our conversation. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, we're, we're starting our new series um, called Becoming the Beloved Community, Restoration and Healing in the Midst of Division. Um, and, you know, rooted in the historical origin of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr., this concept of becoming the beloved community is what's going to frame our conversations in this series. And we're talking with people whom we call peace builders who are involving themselves in the ministry of reconciliation, interrupting and challenging oppression, and holding firmly to a vision of justice, restoration, peace, and healing for all members of a community. Yes. So today in this episode, we are speaking with a pastor, an author, a leader who inspires 
mobilizes and equips communities all over the world to join in the work of making peace and justice realities for everyone. So our guest today is Reverend Adam Russell Taylor. He is the current president of Sojourners and the author of his most recent book, A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. Taylor's occupied a variety of roles in his career. He served as the senior political director at Sojourners, has led the Faith Initiative at the World Bank Group. He's served as the vice president in charge of advocacy at World Vision U.S., as well as the executive director of Global Justice. He has even served in the White House Office of Cabinet Affairs and Public Engagement as a White House Fellow. He's a graduate of Emory University, the Harvard University Kennedy School of Government, and the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology. Taylor's ordained in the American Baptist Church and the Progressive National Baptist Convention and serves in ministry at the Alfred Street Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia. Taylor is also a board member of several organizations and is a member of the original class of the Aspen Institute Civil Society Fellowship. So much there. So he is certainly very qualified, overqualified to be speaking with us. So we're so excited to get into the conversation. Yeah. And we also um, have our peace quote of the week. It is from Martin Luther King Jr. from the role of the church in facing the nation's chief moral dilemma, which was a quote from 1957. And he says, but the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. The type of love that I stress here is not eros, a sort of aesthetic or romantic love, not philia, a sort of reciprocal love between personal friends, but it is agape, which is understanding goodwill for all men. It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. It is the love of God working in the lives of men. This is the love that may well be the salvation of our civilization. It's powerful. Well, we are so, so excited and honored to be joined by you, um, Reverend. And I mean, I don't even know where to start, but would you mind just before we get into the content of your book and um, yeah, a little bit deeper into the conversation, just giving us an introduction to um, where where you are located in the world um, and kind of what position you occupy maybe? Certainly. Well, thank you for having me. And I am currently in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is where I live, just right outside of DC. I'd normally be in my office, but we are still closed down. Uh, we'd hope to reopen actually in January, but the Omicron variant kind of up, up into those plans. Still determined to come back at some point soon. And I had the privilege of serving as the president of Sojourners. We are a Christian ecumenical peace and justice organization that both produces a magazine and a digital publication, speaking to the intersection of faith, politics, and culture, but also does a lot of advocacy and mobilizing with Christians, but also with people of other faith and conscience around a range of issues, including voting rights and protecting our democracy. We do a lot of work around climate justice, around immigration, around policing and our justice system, around economic justice. So it it covers quite quite the gamut in terms of peace and justice. And I, I guess the last kind of hat that I wear, I serve as an associate minister at Alfred Street Baptist Church, which is a, a church in the, in the area. Um, so you you have recently written this book, A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for the Beloved Community. And Becca and I had the chance to read it. And so many things came up. Um, this is the topic of our new series, just beloved community. And um, so I want to, we want to ask you some questions about that. Um, so to kick us off in, in the first part of the book, you identify the need to reimagine and rebirth this vision of beloved community and embrace it collectively in order to move forward in the work of, you know, reconciliation and peace building in our country in some respects. And you, you mentioned that in order to commit to a unifying vision of beloved community, we need to embrace a bigger story of us. 
So can you share what you mean by um, this bigger story? Like what, what is it, what does it mean to build a moral vision through building a bigger story of us? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, one of the reasons that I was inspired to write this book is I became particularly anguished about how extremely divided and polarized our country has become. And, you know, this isn't a new challenge or phenomenon, but it's only gotten worse. I would argue that we're actually, we haven't kind of been this polarized since the height of the civil rights struggle in the 1960s. And I talk about, you know, this kind of concept, which you can certainly unpack later, called toxic polarization, where polarization has become particularly kind of vicious and self-perpetuating to the degree that not only do you know people distrust people who are other than them, including you know politically other, but now they're holding contempt for them. They hate them when they want to defeat them rather than persuade them. And so we're kind of at this this dangerous point. And you know I'm, I'm reflecting a lot as you know, many are in the lead up to the Martin Luther King holiday just this coming Monday. That you know Dr. King, you know was one who both kind of captured the vision of the beloved community, building on some of the early work of Josiah Royce, who literally coined the term, uh, and they're both a part of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. But but what, what, why I kind of emphasize this bigger story of us is that so much of our struggle as a, as a nation has been expanding the we. So our constitution, the preamble, starts with we the people in order to create a more perfect union. And, you know, the we of America has been contested. It has been, you know, something that has been embattled really since the inception of our nation. When our nation began, that we did not really include many parts of the population. You know, most uh, viciously enslaved African-Americans at the time, as well as, of course, the Native population. But also it didn't fully include women. Women were not granted the right to vote when our country began as well. So, you know, part of this journey that we're on requires that we find ways to expand that we. And we've seen, you know, struggles that have helped achieve many of those um, expansions. And now I think in, in kind of how we understand what is, who is our community? Who do we have responsibilities to and for? That is what the we is all about. And that is what kind of the story of us is all about. So. You know, the, the beloved community, I think, is a moral vision that our nation desperately needs again. It faded uh, to some degree between the incredible victories of the civil rights struggle into you know, the 1970s and 80s. It is still something that certainly you know, some, some religious leaders refer to. But I argue that without a kind of unifying, animating moral vision that taps into our deepest held civic and religious values, we are likely to be like a castle made of sand or a house divided against itself, quoting my own faith tradition. And, you know, Jesus said in my tradition that that house is ultimately going to fall. And we're seeing so much of that division that is tearing us apart. And so, you know, I'm not in this book trying to be in any way naive that there is just kind of one fix for all the divisions that we're facing. But, but again, you know, one of the anecdotes to so much of the division we're facing is, is being able to come together around a shared moral vision. And, and again, the beloved community to me is, is the most powerful one that is available to us. Yeah. And, and going back for just a minute, um, and I don't know if you have kind of a, a concise definition on hand, but maybe for, for some grounding for, for all of us, what exactly, when you say beloved community, I'm, I'm sure it captures many different ideas, but, but what exactly, uh, or how would you articulate, you know, this is what the beloved community, this is what the moral vision is or does or says. Yeah, absolutely. So let me, I, I want to kind of give credit and honor to Dr. King. So let me first kind of emphasize some of the things that he would, he would share or did share when he was living. So he really emphasized the beloved community is the end goal actually of the civil rights struggle. So after the Montgomery bus boycott, you know, that kind of first major victory uh, in the civil rights struggle, he made a speech and he said, the end goal is redemption. The end goal is reconciliation. The end goal is the building of the beloved community. So for Dr. King, the beloved community was a commitment to agape love, to a kind of selfless and unconditional love, 
a commitment to nonviolence, both as an ethic, but also as a way of life, a commitment to uh, equality. And, you know, certainly that's rooted in our constitution, a commitment of liberty and justice for all, but, but really ensuring that that can be realized for all people and all, all Americans. Um, so I, I kind of build on so much of what Dr. King had to say and try to put it in more contemporary terms. So I kind of reimagine what that vision would look like today. So my concise definition, it's hard for me to be concise as a Baptist preacher, but this is my best attempt, is the beloved community is where we build a society, build a nation where neither punishment nor privilege is viciously attached to race, to ethnicity, to gender, to ableness, to sexual orientation, to all of the things that so often define who we are, that are a part of our identity. And then it's, it's, it's creating a nation where everyone is seen, everyone is respected, where our diversity is viewed as a strength and not a weakness, and where everyone is enabled to thrive and realize their full potential. And so, you know, I try to kind of hold all of that together, and obviously it gets unpacked in the book, but what I really love about that definition is the first part is very measurable. We can actually measure through you know, lots of public policy lenses whether punishment or privilege is tied to these different parts of our identity. And we know that there are sadly, tragically many ways in which punishment is still tied to skin color and to race in this country. We certainly went through you know, a racial awakening or partial racial awakening summer with the horrific murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor that demonstrated just how much African-Americans are presumed guilty rather than innocent and that we have a real crisis in our policing system and our justice system. We also you know, can point to ways in which privilege is still so often not just tied to race, but also to gender, given so many of the inequalities that are tied to the past that continue to show up in the present. And so you know, while it's a high bar, I actually think the vast majority of the country would agree to this shared vision that we should be working toward ensuring that these parts of who we are don't define our opportunities, don't define whether we are harmed or not, et cetera. So, and then the second part of the definition kind of gets into this sense of we're all beloved and that we all yearn for community. And I think that is innate within us. I mean, it, it's certainly, you know, my belief from my Christian perspective that we're all made in the likeness of image of God, in the image of God, Imago Dei, but it's also kind of my humanitarian belief that we all yearn for a, a belonging and a sense of community with others. And so that's part of the reason why I think when you combine the concept of being beloved and being a part of a community can be so powerful. Yeah, that is incredible. And it's I think it's such a beautiful vision for what can we look towards building as opposed to, maybe not as opposed to, but sort of like having a collective moral vision, like you're saying, that we can work towards that um, gives everybody what they want or need um, deep down, like you're talking about community and um, knowing that they're beloved. And I just think that's so much more powerful than like, okay, how can we take these people down that are our enemies, right? Quote unquote enemies, um, in order to, to build peace and, um, and work towards the vision we may want for our future. But yeah, just really, um, amazed at this, this beautiful vision. So in the second part of your book, um, you talk about the building blocks for beloved community, corresponding with some of the current obstacles that are facing America today, um, including unmasking America's myths, telling the whole truth to set us free, and overcoming toxic polarization, um, as well as redeeming patriotism. Um, and I'm sure there's like a lot to unpack there, but um, from your perspective, how do you think all these building blocks sort of work together to lead to this vision of beloved community? Yeah, so the, the building blocks really start with these barriers that need to be overcome that are currently hampering or kind of suffocating our ability to create beloved community together. And so I start with an emphasis on how we understand ourselves, how do we understand history? the past is never truly past, quoting the words of Faulkner, but, you know, quoting James Baldwin, those who refuse to acknowledge their history remain captive to it. And so one of the chapters you named, which is, and the whole truth will set you free, 
is really emphasizing this commitment to acknowledge the beauty of our history and the ugliness of it. I think we have to have a deeper reckoning with some of the history, not some, but kind of all of our history. So we have a, a shared baseline of understanding of how we've gotten to where we are today. Unfortunately, history has become, you know, real kind of political football these days. And, you know, I think that has been true during different parts of our, our history. But the challenge is that, you know, if we have such inaccurate or, uh, you know, kind of only partial understandings of our history, we're more liable to repeat the mistakes we've made in the past. And we don't fully understand, again, how the past can so often impact and show up in the present. And so just, you know, one, one concrete example of that is the degree to which, you know, so much of our country doesn't know about the era of lynching that took place after the end of Reconstruction. And there's the new museum that I, you know, hope everyone has a chance to see at some point that has been built and created by the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. And they chronicle and kind of capture the story of lynching in America and you know, have these incredible columns for each of the counties in the country where lynchings took place. And it's their way to honor and memorialize those deaths. So many that were kind of never memorialized. And so that's just one example out of many that I think of kind of undertaught uh, you know, parts of our history that it's really important that we understand. Um, so so the, the second kind of building block that comes out of breaking through a barrier is really understanding that we've also been shaped by a whole series of what I call myths. This is actually building on some of the work of Richard Hughes, who wrote a book called Amer The Miss America Lives By. And these are kind of in the DNA, the consciousness of this country. Um, unfortunately, while there's some truth to these myths, they've often been misused and abused in ways to justify white supremacy or to justify a lot of different, you know, injustice in our country. So the, you know, the myth that we are a chosen nation, a myth that we're an innocent nation, a myth that we're a Christian nation, which is still quite prevalent in the country. You know, the reality is we are a, we are a country founded on the separata separation of church and state, which makes a, you know, it's very important to us Baptists because that's kind of <laughs> at the heart of the, the Baptist tradition, but also that we have been a religiously pluralistic country and increasingly are becoming one. And again, that is a real gift and strength of America, not a weakness or something to be feared. And so, and really get, you know, getting the heart of these myths is really important. And, you know, that chapter goes into a lot of history in terms of how those myths were shaped and formed. And again, uh, how they need to be kind of unmasked, if you will, and debunked. The, the other kind of challenge that I mentioned a little bit is, is this challenge of, of toxic polarization. And so I've learned a lot about cognitive science. I am not a scientist by training, but I've learned about the ways in which so much of our brains are hardwired for division. Now, some of this is tied to the flight or fight response that's kind of built into how we respond to you know, situations of threat, but it's also kind of tied into a whole series of, of, of cognitive responses where, you know, for example, we often will presume that someone has more negative attitudes or feelings toward us than they actually do. We often, uh, you know, will treat certain things as, as basically being sacred. And unfortunately, some parts of our politics have become, you know, increasingly sacred where, you know, it's really hard to see flaws or be willing to challenge those things. So, so you know, there, there's... There's a lot of ways in which, yes, we're hardwired for division, but I'd also argue that we are also hardwired for community and for belonging. And so you've got these kind of competing forces within us, and we have to decide which one are we going to defeat, essentially, and be more conscious of those kind of forces that are driving us toward division and ultimately try to kind of emphasize those, those things that enable us to build community. And so, you know, while there isn't any magic bullet to overcome toxic polarization, I do think that there's a lot of ways that we can by trying to show more empathy for people that are different than us and have different views than us. You know, certainly the commitment ingrained in the Christian tradition, but also in other traditions to love your enemy is a, is a kind of revolutionary idea, uh, ethic right now, particularly given so much of the vitriol that's in our politics and the blame that's in our politics and the commitment to listen more deeply to 
to you know the people that have different points of view, uh, let alone just a greater commitment to build relationships across all kinds of boundaries. I'll just cite one one quick study. There was a study that's been done a couple of times called the American Values Survey, and they found that 70% of all white Americans in this country don't have a single person of color in their close social network. So someone that they really trust, that they talk to regularly. And so to me, it's not that surprising that you have, you know, such different realities and such, you know, kind of divisions that are still so racialized in this country when we're not actually in close relationship with each other, whether it's in the workplace or through our schools or through our houses of worship, et cetera. And again, we can't change that overnight, but all of us can make a commitment to try to break out of our comfort zones and build deeper relationship because it's very hard to hate someone that you actually know their story and you know if you if you know know more about them. And then the last one is about redemptive patriotism. So I, I really make the argument that we've got to get out of this counterproductive debate about who loves the country more. I think the brilliance of this country is the ability to critique it, to try to hold it up and and, and hold it accountable to its highest ideals, including the, the ideal of liberty and justice for all. And so, you know, there's there's kind of this more destructive form of patriotism that is very much tied to nationalism. And then there's a much more redemptive form that really tries to help all of us kind of live up to the highest ideals of the country itself. And I really feel like we need that more redemptive form of patriotism, particularly now. Wow. Yeah, that is incredibly insightful and um, really deep thought on our country and our history. And um, thank you so much for sharing. And I did have a, a follow-up question as you're talking about having empathy um, for those who maybe believe or think differently from us. Um, I recently heard somebody say that, you know, there's a difference between having sympathy and then having empathy, because maybe I don't sympathize or agree with your perspective, but how do I still have empathy for you and vice versa? And I'm just wondering if you have any like practical advice in that realm, because I think it can definitely be tricky, especially if we get triggered by something that we think is, you know, immoral or we just even just disagreeing. Um, so do you have any maybe practical advice in that area? Yeah. So I think part of what can elicit empathy is really hearing people's pain and hearing some of their struggles, but also hearing some of their aspirations and hopes. And you're right, it doesn't mean that we then agree with their point of view or we necessarily agree with some of the things they've done or some of the things that they say. But so often kind of what is said and done is coming out of a place of hurt or a place of trauma or a place of feeling victimized. And so, you know, if we don't find a way to kind of get underneath some of that, it's very hard then to find common ground or to be able to see the humanity in someone else. Um, I also just think that it's really important to, you know, in, in those, in, in those contexts, you know, also you know, try to protect yourself because yes, you know, there's going to be some, sometimes you can get triggered. Um, but the more kind of aware we can be about, you know, in some cases you may have to, remove yourself from a conversation if it is just becoming too destructive and counterproductive. Um, but, but in some ways, I think we all can build a little bit more resilience when it comes to listening more deeply and, you know, kind of not jumping to conclusions, not imputing motives. And I understand this is not easy. Like I'm not, you know, in any way trying to sugarcoat this or make it sound like it is just a simple thing. Um, if it was, we'd obviously be in a different place, but but I do think that all of us can build more of those muscles, if you will, to, of empathy. Yeah, to absolutely. I agree. And I, I think that's across the board because it, it doesn't matter what political ideology you have or what your views are. Like all of us get triggered by things and um, need to practice that empathy. So I think, um, yeah, that's really important for, for all of us to, to learn how to practice that. Um, and I, I really love this. I'm just going to read this quote because I think it really speaks to um, our community, especially. Um, 
as Christians, it says our identity as people of faith should eclipse every other identity we have, partisanship, ideology, race, gender, and more. Those of us who understand ourselves to be saved by grace recognize that our salvation is not in any group identity, but through our relationship with Christ. And as people of faith and conscience, we have the tools to combat and overcome toxic polarization that is too often fueled by manufactured divisions, false binaries, and us-them thinking. And I just pull that out because I think um, that really speaks to where a lot of us probably are as followers of Christ and how we're thinking about our identity and how we engage on these various issues. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for <laughs> for pointing that out and, and for writing this book and giving us practical tools for um, how to build beloved community. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And it pains me that, you know, so many of the divisions in our you know, society, in our country, are either mirrored in the church or in some cases are you know, exacerbated and manufactured in the church. And, you know, I'm certainly grateful for a lot of work that the church has done around reconciliation and around justice. So I don't want to discount any of that history and any of that work that's happening now. But I also think we just have to, you know, really, you know, try to challenge each other as Christians to place at the center of our lives that primary relationship of our relationship with Christ. And Christ calls us to unity. And again, it's not like a superficial fake unity where we ignore our differences and we ignore harms that have been done, but it's a deeper form of unity that understands that in Christ, there's neither Greek nor Jew. And that that identity at, at its best really should supersede all of these other identities that you know so often pull us apart. And so, you know, I think it's, it's a, a moment particularly right now where I would like to see, you know, in particular, a commitment to anti-racism to become a requirement of Christian discipleship that, you know, for us to see ourselves as disciples of Christ, we understand that we, that is, that requires this deeper commitment to opposing and resisting any kind of racism, whether it's at the interpersonal level or whether it's at the systemic level that literally is an assault on the Imago Dei and an assault on human dignity. And I, you know, I think we're a long way from there in terms of the entire church kind of sharing that commitment and then you know, being able to embrace that commitment in a more holistic way. I agree, which is, yeah, why where I, I totally see the dismantling of myths coming in and the redeeming patriotism and um, is that kind of being a first step and embracing the, you know, this bigger story of who we are and who we are as a nation. Um, so I do, yeah, I, I want to talk about how throughout the book you um, are, are making the claim that, you know, the, the vision of the beloved community isn't something that um, Christians just have in mind or, or any one religious group or any one religious group, meaning like even, you know, th- th- this is at the heart of our civic ideals as well. And you speak on what you term the Beatitudes of the beloved community, which serve as this like practical foundation for what what the beloved community is. And I'll just read um, this from the book, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but uh, for for everyone else. So you assert that re-envisioning the beloved community calls us to draw on foundational religious and civic ideals. It means we recognize key markers of the beloved community and build on these, including equality rooted in Imago Dei, the image of God in everyone, radical welcome, Ubuntu interdependence, restorative stewardship, nonviolence, and dignity for all. And hopefully you can kind of unpack those a bit. Um, But as each of these are, you know, indispensable for, as we attempt to reimagine beloved community, and beatitude is a word or a concept familiar to, to the Christian tradition with its context being, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teachings um, in, in the book of Matthew. How do you see these beatitudes as finding a home in all, in all religious traditions? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, I, I was very intentional about wanting to build on Jesus' beatitudes in part because... I feel like they are so instructive and so um, 
illuminating in terms of what it means to try to live out a Christian faith. And, you know, Beatitudes literally means blessing. So when we you know, model these commitments, then we will be blessed and others will be blessed. I also chose them because I actually think that in many ways they do resonate with and are found in many other faith traditions. And so in one of the chapters where I try to unpack the beloved community itself, the, the kind of moral vision, I mentioned that, you know, the beloved community is not just a Christian construct. It Part of its power and its, its beauty is that it can be found in lots of other faith traditions, but also in other cultural traditions. So in the Jewish tradition, the concept of tikkun olam, of healing and repairing the world, really is a, a kind of moral vision of, of the beloved community. Certainly the biblical prophets spoke to many kind of, you know, spoke in lots of different ways about a vision very similar to the beloved community. So particularly the, the prophet Isaiah, when he described a new heaven and a new earth in Isaiah 61. In the Islamic tradition, there is you know, lots of ways in which a kind of emphasis on uh, on human dignity and protecting human dignity, as well as you know the kind of notion of one of, one of the five pillars of Islam, zakat, to not just you know be able to give, but to give in order to build community, to strengthen community. Um, and so, you know, lots of different faith traditions have their own way of describing the beloved community. And then in other cultural traditions, I, I talk about in the Korean tradition, there's this understanding of Zhang, which literally is kind of our connectedness, our mutuality. Um, and in the kind of Latino, many Latino cultures, there is this, you know, deep emphasis on the family, on, on Husistia Familia. So the family is kind of the root of how we understand our connections to one another and how we build the kind of community that that models um, what we what we desire. So it is this kind of vision that can transcend. And I don't actually don't think you have to be religious to be inspired by it. It also kind of taps into a lot of humanist humanistic um, ideals and 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 values. Uh, one one of the reasons why I think it has so much power to unite is that it taps into a traditionally conservative emphasis on community and responsibility and a conventionally progressive emphasis on dignity and rights and kind of weaves those things together into a broader moral vision. So that gives you just a little bit of the, the ways in which it can kind of appeal to a much larger audience. And certainly that's my, my hope and that's been my experience. Um, the Beatitudes that I name in the book and kind of unpack you know, really, for me, the building blocks, you know, we talked about the building blocks before, but these are like the commitments, the markers for how we know that we're actually achieving the beloved community. So I talked a little bit about Imago Dei as being central, and, and really that's rooted into a, in a commitment to equality. And that, to me, is rooted in a commitment to understanding and seeing our shared humanity. Uh, there's, I had a chance to study abroad in South Africa in 1996, and it was like a very formative time in my life, just two years after Nelson Mandela was elected, elected the first black president of a new multiracial democracy. And I studied Zulu, foreign languages are not my forte. <laughs> so I've forgotten most of what I learned, but there's a word that really got imprinted in my spirit that I still remember. That's the greeting in Zulu. So, you know, when you say, how are you, you say Salbona. And the response is Siakona. Now Salbona really means I see the humanity in you. And in a religious sense, I see the divinity, the God in you. And then the response to Yacona means I, I have now been seen. And I think it's a really powerful, it's based, based in this kind of understanding of Ubuntu that I am because we are. So I can't be, I can't be fully who I am unless you fully see who I am. And this, this sense of just being seen in a, in a very profound way. And so, you know, in, in, in the book, I kind of unpack what equality requires and what it looks like. And again, I get back to this definition that we've got to be able to break the tie between punishment and privilege being attached to these different parts of identity, particularly race, but also you know, gender and, and, and other identities as well. And so I really try to get to the heart of both you know, evaluating how these are still so often attached to these identities and what would it take to, to transform that, to change that. In the chapter on, on radical welcome, 
I really focus on how a commitment to welcoming the immigrant, the foreigner, is really a core injunction found throughout Scripture. It's found throughout the Old Testament. Certainly Jesus spoke to it in Matthew 25 and lots of other places. And I think that that should be an ethic within how we understand our own commitments to welcome the stranger, the immigrant in our midst. You know, it doesn't translate perfectly into a immigration policy, but I do think that, you know, it would really ground us in understanding just how much of a gift immigrants have been throughout our history. And unfortunately, we've had this very tortured relationship with immigration. You know, we've had some periods of our history where we have shut people out and we have, you know, very much restricted who can be an American and other moments where we have been much more embracing, you know, the kind of Statue of Liberty uh, message and image symbol versus uh, a wall image and symbol. And so, you know, radical welcome is kind of my way of trying to emphasize that, you know, we need to lean into this commitment to, to welcome, you know, let's, from the Christian perspective, let's remember that Jesus was a refugee after he was born in Bethlehem. Literally, you know, Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt to escape Herod's edict of infanticide. And so, you know, the, our savior was at one point a refugee and then was able to, to, to come back into Israel. Um, the third is, is Ubuntu interdependence. And I've talked a little bit about this, but it, but it really, I think, is an ethic that we desperately need because Unfortunately, within the American church in particular, we have often been addicted to this kind of rugged individualism. And, you know, there are some benefits to that, certainly. But I think that there's an underside of that that has often sanctified a degree of selfishness. And, you know, the kind of way to counteract that within the Christian tradition is an emphasis on the golden rule. You know, Ubuntu to me is kind of like the golden rule on steroids. And, you know, it's our way of understanding that you know, our lives are interconnected in both a, a practical sense, but also a moral sense. And I argue in this book that the COVID-19 pandemic has been devastating. It's upended all of our lives, but it also presents an opportunity in that it is kind of a test of our commitment to Ubuntu interdependence. We've had to learn how to try to care for each other more. We've had, it's exposed so many of the brokenness and the inequalities that exist in our healthcare system and in our society. You know, we've had so much heroism and courage from frontline health workers and essential workers. Um, and at the same time, it's exposed some of our worst vices in the sense of, you know, debates over whether we should wear a mask and, uh, you know, a lot of struggles around vaccination and, and more. And so, you know, th this commitment to, to Interdependence, interdependence, I think, is really critical. the The next one is a commitment to prioritizing nonviolence, which you know certainly is you know fits part and parcel into the work that you're that you're committed to. And and Dr. King understood that even in his time, there was a you know violence is rampant and it continues to be rampant today, not just in terms of global conflicts, but in terms of the the prevalence of guns and of violence on our streets, the, the, the incredibly high degree of sui the suicide rate in this country. There are various forms of violence, manifestations of violence that we really need to grapple with more. And, you know, the, one of the, the core, you know, tenets and beatitudes of the beloved community is embracing a commitment to violence, I mean, to, to nonviolence that understands that nonviolence is not just the presence of peace, it's actually the presence of justice. This is building on the words of Dr. King. And so we have to be committed to the work of justice in order to be able to help prevent violence from occurring and be able to disrupt so many of the forces that lead to, to violence. Then there's a commitment to human dignity, so dignity for all. This is a commitment that's literally ingrained in the UN Declaration of Human Rights. It's also a huge part of this uh, bold agenda called the Sustainable Development Goal Agenda that was agreed to in 2015 by world leaders that has a goal of ending extreme poverty by 2030. And what I argue is if you look at the, the Latin word dignity or dignitas, it really means worthiness. We have to get to a point where we all understand that each and every one of us is worthy, not because of what we've done, but inherently based on who we are. Um, and, and that we, we have this kind of obligation to protect 
the dignity of everyone. In the process, we are able to ensure that we can help kind of co-create this kind of society that, that mirrors the beloved community. And then lastly, I emphasize a commitment to environmental stewardship. And this is increasingly you know, critical as we look at the mounting crisis of climate change and its impacts on all of the world, but including the United States. And I really emphasize the, the creation story that you know, reflects on, on God's instructions to us to be a steward of the earth, to care for the earth. Unfortunately, we have often kind of misunderstood or taken out of context this part of Genesis that says that we should have dominion over the earth. And what, what I think is a more accurate understanding is that we are actually called to be stewards of the earth. And, that, and this is a moment where we desperately need to do that, particularly in order to protect the livelihood and the, the hopes and dreams of future generations. So there's, you know, lots more kind of policy details in all, all of those chapters as I try to apply those beatitude principles to some of the challenges we're facing now. And then there's also a whole series of stories. I call them glimpses of the, of the beloved community of, you know, organizations and leaders all across the country and in some cases across the world that are actually doing the work of building the beloved community. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of that work doesn't capture the headlines, but it, 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 it is happening, and I'm hoping this book can be a catalyst to kind of supercharge the, the movement around the beloved community itself. Mm. Yeah, that, and that was actually my follow-up question, if you wouldn't mind sharing, um, because I'm thinking, you know, it, it, this would be incredible fruit to see, you know, of, of the vision of the beloved community, to actually see people embracing the image of God and um, this idea of mutual flourishing or interdependence. So I, yeah, I'm wondering, and it sounds like you have seen kind of the needle being moved a bit. So is there, is there one area where you're like, we are, you know, we're, we're getting the stewardship kind of, we're moving towards that, or are, are you seeing kind of little, little changes within um, maybe different foundational principles or beatitudes, or um, if you maybe want to highlight one story or. Yeah. So. I mean, I'm seeing, you know, hope and glimpses across all of them. I mean, I would just really quickly name a couple of examples. So, you know, there's Interfaith Power and Light is an organization that is working with churches. And I think they're also working with synagogues and mosques around the country. And they have done incredible work to help to green churches, mosques and synagogues, essentially help them to, you know, become more energy efficient. In some cases, to put solar panels on their on their on their roofs, et cetera. And that has kind of led to this, you know, movement of, of houses of worship that are not only helping to protect the environment, but they're also modeling what it could look like for corporations and for individuals to do the same thing. And so I was kind of really inspired by that one. There's also, um, give a more local example that, that ties into peace building. There's a a church here in D.C., you may be familiar with it, called uh, Peace Fellowship, led by Reverend Delante Goldston. And he has been leading these peace walks in a section of D.C. that has one of the highest homicide rates in the city, but also really probably in the country. And it, it literally started with a small group of, of clergy that have been joined by other clergy and then other religious leaders and volunteers who are trying to reclaim the, the streets for peace. And, you know, they're building relationship, they're helping to connect people that are struggling to services, and they're talking to some of, many, you know, some of the young people in particular that are being pulled into cycles of violence. And it actually reminds me of some of the work I did back in Boston many years ago through what's called the Boston 10-Point Coalition that had a fairly similar model. And so, you know, there's examples like that that are happening around the country. There's work that's happening in our education system. There's an organization called Kindred that was founded by a friend of mine named Laura that is literally uniting parents of very different backgrounds all across the DC public school system and is building those, those deep relationships that we so desperately need. And in the process, these parents come to realize that there are these huge disparities, particularly racial disparities in the education system, and that you know many students of color don't have access to the same social capital and the same extracurricular opportunities as many uh, you know, more affluent white children. And so they've been working together to try to 
close those disparities and, and you know, advocate for changes in, in, in the school system, but also create programs. And again, it kind of shows you what can happen when people come together with a shared, you know, kind of commitment to, to wanting to see their children flourish. And by being in relationship with each other, it expands the we, as we talked about before, that can then lead to a ripple, ripple effect of change. It's very encouraging. Beautiful. Yeah. And I've, I've, I have not participated in a DCP SWAC yet, but I'm connected to those folks who help facilitate that. And I don't know if you've heard of um, a non, a pastor named Devin Turner, Revolution Church in DC, but um, he partners with the DC Peace Walks, and now they're doing this piece of art DC program for youth living in that area that you're talking about with the, the highest homicide rates um, to give youth a chance to develop their skills in music and film and, and creative arts and um, try to prevent violence that way and also disciple them and in, in being peacemakers in their communities. Um, but yeah, really incredible to hear all those examples of, of building beloved community. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. I, I just, I really appreciate that. You know, this isn't some like idealistic or like pie in the sky vision, but you, you make the case. And I think convincingly that this is something at the heart of, of us just as individuals, but then collectively um, as, as a nation and just as, as humans, maybe it's something that's just ingrained in us um, is this, vision. And so I, yeah, I, I would plug this book, recommend it to all my friends, certainly, because I I know I learned a ton and I'll be giving it a second read. So. No, thank you. And if if you don't mind just sharing one other example, that's really timely and it's actually ties into some of the work that Sojourners is doing. So, you know, one of the chapters in the book is focused on revitalizing and reinventing our democracy. And I really make the case that you know, our democracy is facing some of the biggest challenges it's faced in a very long time. Um, the right to vote in particular is under assault in many states around the country. Since the 2020 election, there have been over 400 bills that have been proposed and, you know, about over 30 of those have passed that make it more difficult for certain communities, particularly communities of color, and in some cases, young people, to be able to exercise what John Lewis described as the sacred right to vote. And so, we, Sojourners and the National African American Clergy Network joined forces in 2016, recognizing even back then that there was a, a kind of concerted effort to pass bills and legislation that made it more difficult to vote in many states to try to kind of push back against that and to unite clergy as well as now increasingly rabbis and imams to work together to protect the vote, because we feel like that is you know, such a bedrock of democracy, but it's also the way in which we voice our agency, or we express, you know, we exercise our agency. And so we developed a campaign that is now called Face United to Save Democracy, and we're working in 10 states to equip and to mobilize religious leaders in particular to work with their houses of worship to ensure that they can you know, get their folks registered, they can educate them about kind of what has changed so they can exercise their sacred right to vote and to try to hold elected officials at every level accountable for a free, fair and safe election. Mm-hmm. And we have been in the last in 2020, you know, we literally had over 2000 clergy that volunteered on Election Day to serve as chaplains, working alongside lawyers to provide a moral presence at polling sites, particularly within vulnerable communities in order to try to be a deterrent for intimidation and violence that has happened in some elections and to try to troubleshoot challenges that came up and answer questions. And we're gonna be doing more of that in, 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 in coming, you know, this 2022 midterm election and beyond. And then we've been advocating for national federal legislation that would help to protect the right to vote. So the John Lewis Voting Advancement Act and what's called the Freedom to Vote Act. And so, you know, these are literally bills that are being debated as we speak. Um, There'll hopefully be major decisions about them very soon. And I just encourage us to understand that there's no real achieving a more perfect union unless we also are committed to achieving a more perfect democracy. Mm -hmm. And we know there's no such thing as a perfect democracy, but we've got to be on the road of, of helping to build a more perfect democracy. And to me, that requires us 
to co-create together a more inclusive multiracial democracy. And to me, that, that, that is really one of the biggest tests in front of us. Thank you so much, Reverend Taylor. This has been an incredible conversation and agree with Ali that I'll be recommending your book to everybody and to our listeners. Please read it. Um, We'll post the link in the episode and can't wait for everyone to continue learning about how to build beloved community together. All right. Thank you. Wow. That was... um, such an amazing conversation and just really grateful for Reverend Taylor's book and all of the work that he's put into um, sort of casting this vision for um, the beloved community and also the the need for that sort of reimagined moral vision for people who come from all different backgrounds and beliefs and political ideologies and um, ethnicities and culture, like everybody to come around a sort of vision for what this um, country and world could look like. Yeah, I, um, man, I, I just learned a ton in our conversation. If you, yeah, if you haven't been convinced yet, let us just plug once more to get yourself a copy of A More Perfect Union, because truly, I mean, this conversation was only a glimpse of, um, the concepts that he, you know, even more deeply unpacks in the book. And one that, you know, really <clears throat> has stuck with me for the past couple of days is um, just the, the need to, in order to get to the beloved community, in order to all embrace this vision that we have to embrace a bigger story of us. And I mean, I think practically, I've just been reflecting on what what this requires of me. And I think it requires that, and this is only my reflection on this, but you know, it requires that I like decenter myself from the story, you know, and that it's not um the way that I view our nation's history, my, you know, particular context. It doesn't revolve around me, which sounds, you know, so like cliche or, but, but I think there is such a need for, um, us to, you know, definitely hold on to, to our own personal stories and our past and what, what shaped us and what we're bringing into conversations, but also to accept the reality that there are other, um, like narratives in the country going on other than our own and what we've experienced and maybe, um, maybe what we have, gone through and seen and observed and are observing currently isn't necessarily the norm or doesn't define what is true or real. Um, and so I just think that that, yeah, that, that concept of embracing a bigger story is, um, so, so important in order to, um, get to where we want to go together. Yeah, that's, that's so, so good. And I, I love what you're saying about decentering ourselves. And I think that's, yeah, like you're saying, it's easier said than done because (laughs) I think, yeah, we can easily just get stuck in um, like our own world, our own perspectives, our own context. But that's such a great point to look outside of that and to be able to see others who have a different story going on and how can we recognize that um, and see the bigger picture. Right. Yeah. Because all we know is what we know, you know? And so I think it requires that we ask and listen, um, to others who are coming from a different worldview, however that looks, whether it's religious tradition or political and, um, you know, we're going to be kind of tackling some of those themes, um, throughout this series, but, um, yeah, it, it requires a certain curiosity. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think, um, you know, I loved what he was saying too about like, I love that word curiosity, because it's like, instead of saying, how can you think that? Or how can you believe that? It's like, can you tell me more about how, how did you come to believe that? Or how did you come to think that, you know, right? and sort of like, Reverend Taylor is talking about empathy, like, um, yeah, like, moving beyond sort of, um, our own comfort levels and our own 
um, positions to be able to empathize with with people who think differently and believe differently from us. And, you know, recognizing that doesn't mean we have to agree with them or even sympathize necessarily, but can we empathize with those who are different from us, believing that they, you know, carry the image of God. And, um, you know, for those of us who do claim to follow Jesus, like, what does it look like to model the ways of, of peacemaking that Jesus modeled for us? Um, in loving others. It is so difficult. And I think like recently that perspective has been very freeing. Not that I get it perfectly every time, but just the perspective that I don't, yeah, we don't have to voice our agenda in a conversation. Even if we disagree with the person that we're speaking with, like silence is not necessarily, um, agreement. And I don't know what you think of that, but I mean, I I guess, you know, especially in situations where the other person, there's been a conversation most recently and I, the other person maybe just needed to be heard, but I just needed them to know that I didn't agree. And it didn't lead anywhere productive. And so I think, yeah, your distinction between sympathy and empathy in conversations like that is a very freeing um, kind of framework to be operating within of like, I don't, I don't have to, um, I can just, yeah. Tell Mm -hmm. me more about, about that. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think for, it is tricky because on some level it's like both parties have to agree to be empathetic towards each other (laughs) and like participate in that sort of dialogue. And I think, But for those of us who are trying to be peacemakers, like following Jesus in the way of peacemaking, maybe we might have to take that first step of being the empathetic listening ear and Mm. seeking to understand. Um, And then we can make the ask of, you know, are you willing to understand my position or where I'm coming from? Can we have that conversation too? That's a really good point. Easier said than done. Absolutely. (laughs) but that's what we're we're trying to do. That's what we're called to do. And yeah, and I think that's what we have to do if we want to see this vision of the beloved community come to fruition. Man, I'm walking away with so many um, more questions of how, how this looks practically in my life and yeah, how the community I'm in can start to see ourselves as interdependent and as... Um, that our, our lives and our stories are like interwoven. Um, I just, yeah, that's another one of the concepts that he voiced in the book that just really touched me. Um, just the concept of flourishing for all and, um, yeah, definitely echoes Dr. King's sentiments as well. Yeah, totally. And I, you know, I love the question that you asked about, um, kind of, you know, this, a lot of these concepts are sort of Christian faith-based, mm-hmm. um, but like, how does this apply to various faith groups and religious traditions? Um, and I think that's, that's so important. And I loved what he shared about, you know, all these different, um, like origins within various faith groups and cultural mm-hmm. groups and like, um, how they all contribute to the same idea. Um, and I think that's so important. And I think for us as, as peacemakers, as followers of Jesus too, like how we view people from other faith groups coming into the beloved community is not like, I need you to believe what I believe in order to be a part of the beloved community, or I need you to think what I think for us to be in that beloved community together. Um, I think it's really, really key. Yeah. And it makes it feel feel not so far off if it's like something that is perhaps within all of us, you know, that we all actually want this in some respect. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps it's more attainable. <laughs> yeah. So we just wanted to um, leave you all with a couple of quotes from Reverend Taylor's book, which we really hope that you um, go out and read yourself. So this one quote says, the, the vision of the beloved community animated the civil rights movement, but since then it often has been overshadowed and derailed. 
Bridging the deep divides among us will not come purely through an, an electoral outcome or a change in political leadership, as important as these shifts may appear. Due to distortive incentives in our politics that favor extremism, blame, and zero-sum thinking, it is increasingly unlikely that a unifying moral vision will come primarily out of the political realm. Mm. And then... The beloved community has arms wide and strong enough for all of America, including those known as dreamers and others in immigrant communities, those from religious traditions considered outside the mainstream, and those who have been left out and left behind. From Midwestern towns and rural farms to indigenous reservations and blighted cities or suburbs, red, blue, and everything in between. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. Thanks, everyone.